You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Every great story follows a similar pattern. When it comes to a great book or a great movie, if you think about it, they they all kind of follow the same storyline. There's a protagonist, a central character that the story focuses on. There's an antagonist, which is a person that is opposed to that protagonist or a situation that causes some trouble for that protagonist. And in every great story, there's a moment where everything looks bleak. A moment that looks impossible for the protagonist. A moment of great desperation. And in that moment, something happens. Something dramatic happens that that turns the tide, that changes the situation, that allows the protagonist to to escape or have victory or success. If you think about it, think about your favorite movie, your favorite book, it probably follows that basic storyline. And I believe that all great stories have elements in them that follow the great story, the story of redemption, the story of what God has done in Christ to rescue sinners like me and like you. And last week we studied Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 and we saw how desperate our situation is apart from Christ. It's, it's very, very bleak. And if we just stopped in verse 3, we would be a hopeless people. But I want to show you that in the middle of our desperation, in the midst of our impossible situation, God has dramatically intervened. The Bible communicates this with just two words. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful letter. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Ephesus. We've made our way to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to focus specifically on the first part of verse 4, but to set the context, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Boy, I was moved by the music this morning. We were singing, It Is Well With My Soul. I was just thinking about all that's going on, the the world situation, the uncertainty, the unrest. And we sang that, that wonderful truth that one day the trump will sound, the Lord will descend, and he's coming back to set everything right. Amen? What a glorious day that will be. That is our hope. That is our confidence and uh, boy, I was just blessed by that. So I, I was so blessed, I almost turned the mute off on my microphone just so you, I could, I, you could hear my voice too, all right? <laughs> but fortunately for you, I didn't. Sanity prevailed. 
Ephesians chapter 2. Look there in verse 1. The Bible says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now look in verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we're, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for this opportunity to gather as a faith family, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, and to come to this moment of Bible study with expectant hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would speak into our lives. By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you take your word and, and grip our hearts with it? Open our eyes that we might see truth and give us inclination to respond to the truth that you show us. Lord, have your way in this place. Touch hearts, change lives. All for your glory. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians, we've been reminded that the theme of this book is simple but profound. The theme of Ephesians is that we experience God's grace in Christ. And that grace saves us. It unites us with other believers and strengthens our Christian walk. And as Paul, in the first three chapters of this book, seeks to, sh to show the reader the, the, the wealth that we have in Christ, the, the, the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, in chapter 2, he wants to spend some time helping us to understand what our life was like before we were saved. And, and he wants us to understand the condition of those who are not saved. We studied that last week. The title of the sermon last week was Desperate for a Savior. Because verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 remind us of how bad things are for those that are not saved. The Bible teaches that everyone has three enemies of the soul. There is the world, the ungodly systems and people that are bombarding us with this message, seeking to get us to conform to its ways. There's the devil, the prince of the power of the air, who is a tempter, who is a destroyer, always trying to lure you into the wrong direction. And then there is the flesh. The Bible says by nature we are children of wrath. We, we have an inner sin nature that, that leads us astray, that causes us to sin. Every one of us deal with the, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And the Bible says, at the end of verse 3, that we are living under the wrath of God because of our sin and rebellion against him apart from Christ. And to drive home the point of the desperation of our spiritual condition, Paul says in verse 1 that we are 
dead in trespasses and sins. That's our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And if that's all we knew about our spiritual condition, we would be hopeless. But aren't you glad in the midst of an impossible situation? Aren't you glad in the midst of a desperate condition that God doesn't leave us to ourselves? Aren't you glad that God has decided in his grace because of his mercy motivated by his love to intervene and do something about our condition? It says there in verse 4, in the midst of our spiritual death, God has decided to do something. And it uses just two words to drive that point home. But God. I like how the ESV Study Bible speaks of this phrase, but God. It reads, no hopeless fate looks any grimmer than that which awaits the forlorn company of mankind marching behind the prince of the power of the air to their destruction under divine wrath. Just when things look the most desolate, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but... God. Now it might interest you to know that Ephesians 2 verse 4 is not the only time we see this phrase, but God. When God flooded the earth as an act of judgment, brought on by the wickedness and evil of humanity, Noah and his family were on the ark surrounded by water for 150 days. They probably began to wonder if it was hopeless. They probably began to wonder if they would ever see dry land again. They probably began to wonder if they too would perish. That's when the Bible says in Genesis 8 verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. But God here speaks of God being a merciful rescuer. When Joseph's brothers were concerned that he would seek vengeance for their mistreatment of him. Joseph saw the big picture. He knew that God had used their mistreatment to send him ahead to Egypt and, and be able to save his family during a great famine. And Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here, but God points to a sovereign God who is in control and working out his perfect plan. In Psalm 49, the psalmist laments the inevitability of death. He declares that death is coming for the rich and the poor, the wise and the unwise. Everyone is headed to their appointment with mortality. And as he reflects upon this truth that death is coming for all, his hope begins to soar as he declares in verses 14 and 15. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, the place of the dead. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. In this verse, but God gives us hope beyond the grave. Another psalmist named Asaph struggles with some things he is observing in life. 
In the 73rd Psalm, Asaph wonders why the ungodly seem to thrive with material prosperity. And he struggles as he seeks to live a godly life in his day-to-day existence. But as he goes to the temple to worship, he begins to understand that life is not truly measured by material possessions. He understands that the one who has God is truly rich. And he declares in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here, but God focuses us on the true riches we have in a relationship with God. In Romans, Paul speaks of our hopelessness as sinners that have rebelled against God. He describes our spiritual state apart from Christ as being enemies of God. And then he says in verse 7, But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, verse 8, Christ died for us. In this verse, but God reminds us of God's love. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes their hardships as his missionary team took the gospel to Macedonia. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 5 and 6, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Listen, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. But God here assures us of God's comfort. And finally in Acts, as Paul tells the story of Jesus to people in Antioch, Pisidia, he says of Jesus, chapter 13, verses 29 and 30, when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, was nailed to the cross, died on the cross, was taken off the cross and buried and left for dead. But then Paul says in verse 30, But God raised him from the dead. Here in this verse, but God declares the victory of the resurrection. And so we see this phrase, but God, is used all throughout the Bible. And it speaks consistently of a desperate, hopeless situation in which God graciously chooses to intervene. And that's the truth here in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you in the context of this this letter what but God means for us in this room today. But God in this passage speaks, first of all, of God's gracious initiative. God's gracious initiative. The word but God is meant to communicate God has intervened. In what situation has God intervened? Well, back to verse 1 of chapter 2 where Paul says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's a metaphor for our condition apart from Christ. If you look there in your notes, spiritual death means total inability. Total inability. I mean, if if there were a corpse laying up on this stage, you could come up to the corpse and say, hey, get up. Get up. But it's not going to do any good. It would be unable to get up. It's a a corpse. It's, It's a person who is dead. And Paul says that's our spiritual condition. We are totally unable to do anything 
to help ourselves. We're totally unable to do anything to save ourselves. We're totally unable to do anything to make our situation better. We are spiritually dead. In our society today, there's all sorts of ideas about how people better themselves and better their condition and better their lives. We hear things like education or encouragement or enlightenment will help a person uh, 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 make their lives better. But this passage says, you can't make your life better. You are spiritually dead. You need some help. Dane Ortland writes this, Christian salvation, and hear this, this is important, Christian salvation is not assistance. I've heard people say sometimes that, that you've got to meet God halfway. Eh, wrong answer. You can't even get halfway. Can I get a witness? Christian salvation is not assistance. It is rescue. The gospel does not take our good and complete us with God's help. The gospel tells us we are dead and helpless, unable to contribute anything to our rescue but the sin that requires it. Christian salvation is not about enhancing. It is about resurrecting. Why? Apart from Christ, because of our sin and rebellion, we are are spiritually dead, unable to save ourselves. But this phrase, but God, communicates something, doesn't it? It it communicates that God desired to do something about our spiritual condition. That God took the initiative to do what was necessary to rescue us from our spiritual death. But God, God decided to, to send His Son to this earth, that that Jesus might take on human flesh and and, and fulfill all righteousness and go to the cross and die for our sins and pay the penalty that we deserve to pay and then be buried and rise from the grave. God sent His Son to do that. He took the initiative to provide salvation. Over in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes of the grace of God. And he says, listen to this, the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, the grace of God brings us salvation. We're unable to make it, make it to God in and of ourselves. We are spiritually dead. God must come to us. And that, that is the great message of Christianity. Other religions promise that they will help you find your way to God. Christianity says he came to find you. That's grace. It's God's initiative. It's God's love and mercy for you that he would take the first step. Early on in our marriage, I remember I had the stomach flu. Awful. And, you know, newlyweds, you know, you're... You're excited to be married and, and living life together. and Everything's exciting and wonderful. And, and uh, then you get to experience things like stomach flu together. Reality check, right? And I remember I, I was really sick I was, when I was up in seminary. And uh, Claire was in pharmacy school. And I was really sick. And, and I was so weak, I just couldn't get off the couch. I was just laying there. Just, and, uh, and Claire, would, she, would, she would bring me, you know, Fluid. She would bring me Gatorade. She would bring me soup. And she would come and check on me. When, when I couldn't get off the couch, Claire kept coming 
to me, and, and that's a picture of salvation. Because, listen, apart from Jesus, not only are we really, really sick, it's worse than that. We are dead. And we can't make it to God. God must come to us. And the Bible says, but God, in the midst of your desperate, hopeless, impossible situation, did something to save you. It's good news. I don't think I'll ever get over the fact, and I don't want to get over the fact, that when I was the enemy of God, I'd rebelled against him, sinned against him. When I, was a, when I was unlovely in my sin, I'll never get over the fact that God came to me. I'll never get over the fact that love moved first. So this phrase, but God, speaks of God's Gracious initiative. He took the first step, which had to happen for us to be saved. It also speaks of God's dramatic intervention. It speaks of our spiritual death in verses 1 through 3, and then in verse 4, but God, but God. God did something definitive to help us in our condition. What did God do? God sent His only Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And then, God did a work in our lives. Look what it says in verses 5 and 6. We'll look at these verbs a little bit more in the next few weeks. But look what it says there in verse verse 5. It says, He he raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So so the, the Lord sent His Son to be the substitutionary atonement for our sin. And then when we met Christ and placed our faith in him, drawn by the Spirit of God, God raised us up. God made us alive. God brought us into union with Christ, and we are seated with him in heavenly places. That is our position in Christ. So God did some things for you and for me. God's dramatic intervention. Not only did God want to do something, he did something to save you, something definitive. I think about my own life. I think about my own spiritual condition apart from Christ. I think about when I was nine years of age and I heard the gospel. My pastor was telling me of God's dramatic intervention for me. And by the way, when my pastor pulled up in his maroon Buick in my driveway to come talk to nine-year-old Wade Humphreys. That was God's dramatic intervention to send somebody to share the gospel with me, right? And and then, as I was sitting at my dining room table, and and F.T. Rogers was sharing the gospel with me, the Holy Spirit of God was working on the inside, drawing me, showing me my need for a Savior. I'm so grateful today for God's dramatic intervention. How about you? He did all of that to save you, to rescue you from spiritual death. But God, he did something. But third, this phrase, but God, speaks of God's loving invitation. Loving invitation. He says there in verse 1, dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2, following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. Verse 3, carrying out the desires of our flesh, by nature children of wrath, but God. 
The phrase, but God, means you don't have to stay in that condition. That spiritual condition, that death, that separation from God doesn't have to define your life. But God means that things can change, you can be saved, you can be made alive. It's God's loving invitation. It means there is no hope apart from what God did through His Son. I I mean, let's just state the obvious here. He didn't say, but Muhammad, or but Buddha, but Krishna, but Confucius, but self-help. He says, but God. And in the context of Ephesians, this is the God, the one true God, who reveals himself through his son Jesus Christ and through the Bible. This is the one true God, and He is our only hope. There's no hope apart from what God did through His Son. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, There's only one hope for man in sin, says Paul, but God. This reality implies that we should and we can turn to Him. That's what it means. But God, he did something. So that that implies that there's an invitation that. If God's the one who did something, then he's inviting you to come to him. We should and we can turn to this God. A little bit later in Ephesians, and we'll spend some time studying these verses in coming weeks. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. How are we saved? How do we turn to God? How do we receive this salvation? How do we receive this intervention? How do we receive this rescue? How do we receive this resurrection? Only by faith in the one who made it possible. Only by trusting Christ and his finished work only by coming to the end of ourselves and saying I can't save myself this road I'm on leads to destruction so I will I will repent of my sin and turn to the only one who can save and his name is Jesus this phrase but God speaks of God's loving invitation since God did something this salvation that he dramatically intervened to bring about, is available. It's available. And and maybe you're here today, and you've never been saved. If you were to die right now, you have no assurance that you would go to heaven. And, And you are spiritually dead. You are lost and in your sins. You are far from God, and you are helpless to change your situation. But God... He invites you to turn to him. You see, the phrase, but God, is a bridge between despair and delight. It's a bridge between separation and salvation. It's a bridge between spiritual death and spiritual life. The phrase, but God, means, listen, there is no one beyond hope. There is no lost cause. There is no one who has gone too far. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor Wade, you don't know what I've done. 
You don't know the depth of my sin and, and depravity. And you know what I have to say to that? But God. You say, Pastor Wade, there's a prodigal in my family and they are running from God and they are, they are going down the wrong path, the path that leads to destruction. Is it hopeless? You know what I have to say to that? But God. There's no one beyond the grace of God. There's no one that has to remain in their spiritual death because God has done something definitive. It's like we sang earlier. And I was singing the line and I was thinking about this sermon and it was overwhelming. It was that line and it is well with my soul that says, Christ hath regarded my helpless a state. Wow. Wow. I'm so grateful that my sin, my rebellion, my iniquity, my trespasses don't define my life anymore. I'm so glad that I'm not languishing in spiritual death far from God. I'm so grateful for those two words. Aren't you? But... Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.